song you just heard is Dog of War by the Hell Yeah Babies, which means I'm Nick Bond. I'm David Gibb. And this is how dirt sheets explain wrestling. Exciting episode today, Dave. Oh, definitely. Uh, dirt sheets are a product that uh, I have paid for in the past, so uh, they're very near and dear to my heart, uh, both as a wrestling fan and as a uh, consumer of crap. <laughs> uh, and extra exciting episode because we are actually sitting next to each other while doing this as opposed to in completely different states. I know. We're sitting pretty close to each <laughs> other. I'll even say I would say my left knee and your right knee are between four and seven inches apart from each other. Yeah, depending on how much my right leg is shaking. Exactly. Uh, you may, in fact, we are at Dave's house. You may hear do- Dave's dogs in the background. Oh, yeah. Hopefully not. Hopefully they'll be on their best behavior uh, upstairs. Hopefully the good one is effectively babysitting the less good one. <laughs> and that's actually a great transition to what we're going to talk about this episode. Dirt sheets have a long and... Uh, I'm putting air quotes for you guys that can't see it. Storied history as part of wrestling lore. After bags, they are the first of what I guess you would call the dirt sheets. But uh, Dave, you, you've read a couple of more after mags than I have. Uh, can you explain for the folks at home? Yeah, yeah, I've seen some, uh, I've seen both some original, you know, copies of The Wrestler and magazines like that, as well as some scans that people have put up online. There's a lot of accounts out there that are kind of dedicated to putting this old stuff up. But basically, yeah, a lot of these magazines were, were published by a guy named Stanley West, and I think at one point he owned, like, something like 60 different magazine titles that he was the publisher of. And the main, or the most famous photographer and writer and editor for those magazines was a guy named Bill After. So that's where the term After Mags comes from. If you watch like late 80s, early 90s WCW, especially kind of early 90s, they, he shows up a lot. They used to put, he's, he's a kind of smaller guy with glasses and, a, and a, a bald head. And he's got a bit of a stereotypical accent, I guess you could say. <laughs> After with another special AWA press conference. And remember, big blockbuster announcements coming from the AWA. Follow the AWA TV and our magazines. We'll be breaking all the news to you today. A pleasure to have on Vern Gagne and Greg Gagne. First of all, gentlemen, welcome to press conference. Vern, was it a shock to you that Jerry Lawler won the AWA title? Uh, yes and no. He's had a, he's been a kind of a hard luck wrestler over the years, and he's had, he's had many championship tries and never quite accomplished it. Mm-hmm. So we had our yes, we had our doubts. Okay, now about Greg, this one, but he did it. Greg, the race for the title between you and Jerry Lawler. Obviously, Lawler, at this point, you know, came out ahead. Does this kind of, uh, now that somebody who's a friend of yours has the title, does this kind of lessen your thirst for that belt? Uh, no, Bill, I don't think it should with any athlete. Uh, we watch professional football. We see uh, players who play together in college go against each other right opposite the line or running back against a linebacker. And it's the same thing in our sport. Jerry Lawler right now is the champion, and that's the that's my goal, and it should be every Every athlete or in this sport, his goal to be the world's heavyweight champion. And I don't care if it's Jerry Lawler or if it's my best friend that has that title. When we step in the ring, it's a different story, and I will win that match. Okay, Vern. It's a good thing I retired because he'd have been challenging me. Ganya versus Ganya. Any any idea what would have happened in that? Yeah, yeah, we've had it a lot of times. Dad usually wins? Yeah, we moved the the furniture back, and uh, it was a lot of fun. Well, I, uh, when, he, when he got to be about 19, I kind of gave up on that. You gave up on it. Yeah, that's when he broke my ribs when I was 19. What I want to do right now is uh, just imagine that we're in a locker room, the two of you sitting there before a match with Greg Gagne against Jerry Lola for the AWA belt, and Vern Gagne as his coach advising Greg Gagne what to do. What would you tell him? Well, I wouldn't be advising him. He'd have it all together by that time, and I'm just there probably for moral support. So those magazines were really kind of for people who wanted to play along. 
people who wanted to learn more about the wrestlers and the the angles and the storylines and what they were seeing on TV. Um, but not it, they were not what we would call dirt sheets in the term that they weren't really airing out dirty laundry. They would be pretending to air out dirty laundry. They'd be like, uh, the Rock and Roll Express might break up because they're almost like gossip mags in the world of kayfabe. Like they were kayfabed gossip mags in the way that dirt sheets in the modern context, like the Wrestling Observer Newsletter are... Uh, in the same way like Variety or a Hollywood Reporter is, where they're actual papers of record for the industry, but at the same time, a lot of it is innuendo and who's talking to who and what might end up happening, more so than like actual concrete. Real news is the wrong way to put it, but there's a different style of journalism that's inherent to gossip that is different than, say, uh, the story BuzzFeed just published about the Russian woman who was a Russian agent who infiltrated pro-gun organizations. Like, that was a very strongly reported, backed up with multiple sources that were confirmed, where something like the Wrestling Observer Newsletter, which is the most famous, is, it's in his house in Northern California. Just, he gets call, phone calls from people, he talks to them. You'll never find out any of the sources, but he'll basically be talking to somebody right after a meeting. And uh, one of the famous people that was one of his sources that actually got exposed was J.J. Dillon uh, by the WWE, I believe, uh, in the early 90s. But it was those level of people who were literally in the discussions and the meetings. But they also do things like leak information to him, which is a common thing in political reporting, in political gossip reporting, I should say, is that things will be purposefully leaked to get ahead of the story. And uh, that's that's what happens in industry papers of record. Yeah, definitely. Or another reason a lot of that stuff was getting leaked was, you know, people were trying to feather their own nests. They would see people who were in positions of weakness or people whose jobs they aspired to. And they would be making sure that any unflattering news or any unflattering story about that person was getting to Dave Meltzer or Wade Keller. Like I always think of uh, Terry Taylor was a great example of that in WCW. Like he was for a long time, kind of like, you know, one of the kind of junior members of the booking committee, and he definitely aspired to hire. So anytime there's someone like dishing about the inner workings of the WCW booking committee in like mid to late 90s uh, of dirt sheets, you basically know that that information probably came from Terry Taylor. <laughs> and those are um, the transition between the after mag and the Hollywood, the Hollywood Reporter style uh, Wrestling Observer Newsletter, uh, the Torch figure four weekly, which actually combined with Wrestling Observer Newsletter. Those are different than, say, your total dog shit, no DQ style Raja WWF rumors, <laughs> where it's literally just copy and pasted and complete made up stuff and weird articles that are all inundated with pop-up ads. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, it's funny. Back in around 2011, 2012, I got really passionate for a while on specifically Raja and no DQ. I would just copy and paste their stories into Google, and if it turned up on other bigger uh, dirt sheets, there were times. There actually were times when I sent a couple of emails to people, just being like, "Hey, just so you know, this is like being printed here, a hundred percent identical, not a single word changed without any credit being given." So I went through a phase uh, as a fan and a writer where I was deeply uh, offended by that. But I think now I have the wisdom just to see, as you said, that, they, that it is just dog shit. You know what I mean? On a certain level, I, I have respect for like a guy like Aaron Rift who owns No DQ. I've I've watched some of the YouTube videos that he put up like way back when. This is in like 2010 when he first started doing YouTube videos and stuff. But uh, 
But, but like, you know, I respect that he built something and it's something he's been doing since he was in like high school and stuff. Like he was registering domains when he was like 1450. Like he, he literally used to own the domain. I think it was www.wcw.com. <laughs> like that's how he like broke into the business is he just had the presence of mind to, to claim that domain. You were offended as a writer. I was offended as somebody who had a Windows PC and would constantly be attacked by the pop-up ads and the spyware that it would put on there. Uh, it's a little bit different in terms of... Oh, don't worry. Says. He's got Matt Keeper too. Don't you worry. <laughs> and I, I think it, you see a transition from people being able to see stuff, having to pay to see stuff in a walled garden style, to everyone being able to talk about wrestling rumors whenever they came out, because literally what would happen is someone would read the Wednesday Wrestling Observer newsletter and then print the next day or that night the things that were in the newsletter so every it went from a thing where only insiders and nerds knew to everyone now knowing everything that's going on backstage yeah and i think in hindsight that was not a great move for the business i think when you look at the wwe crowd today and the difficulty they have getting certain responses i mean i don't want to give them too much credit because they're not booking well enough to get the response that they want but that's a whole different conversation but like when it, when you think about the crowd takeover era and stuff i really think that does kind of coincide with with the big growth of no dq like i said this is back i mean especially back in like uh 2008 2009 2010 well i remember that that was a time when that site was like really really growing both in terms of moving out from just copying and pasting to starting to do their own opinion videos on YouTube and stuff. Like that was a moment where that was when the Twitter wrestling community was also really, really vibrant. And I think that those no DQ and a pieces and some of the like kind of stupid work shoot friends pretending to hate each other stuff that they did with like Noah Donish and Jeff Meacham. Like I was never a huge fan of that stuff, but it was definitely stimulating a lot of dialogue at a time when dialogue was actually kind of cool. Like now it's like, as much as I love talking about wrestling with you or with our audience and stuff, like it's Twitter's not. A, I mean, Twitter's not a safe and healthy place really to talk about anything. But but basketball but Twitter is not terrible. Kobe stands out. <laughs> <laughs> Don't pay attention to that stuff anymore. But definitely at a time when the when the dialogue on Twitter was healthier, I think they were helping drive that. As much as I think some of the other stuff they were doing was just total bullshit. Yeah, and I. I think what you see is that growth, like you said, of the fans deciding that they knew what was going on without actually understanding the larger context of what happened, which is one of the reasons that, for instance, like Dave Meltzer had such a problem with that kind of world. And it wasn't just that they were stealing his content. It's that he would get yelled at for rumors, and you see it today, that he talked about that somebody didn't actually read the full story for. They literally just get the meat of... Because Dave Meltzer will write an actual paragraph and they will take one sentence from it. And it will be an accurate sentence in terms of the news, but it will not explain it in the larger context of it. Or they'll pull something from his podcast and be like, he said this. And it's like, yeah, he did say that. But if you listen to the 10 minutes before, he's talking about hypotheticals or what he's heard, not this is what's going to happen. And for him, it was a real problem from both his credibility, which isn't fair. And the fact that they were stealing his content and posting it. 
Yeah, that's why I never listen to podcast sound bites on YouTube. Uh, number one, they're probably stolen. You know, a small amount of the time, uh, those creators have those YouTube pages. But a lot of the time, if you cannot clearly see that that is that creator's page and there is any kind of ad on it, like that is someone stealing that shit. So once again, number one, like some of this dirt sheet stuff, or not dirt sheet stuff, I shouldn't even say, because this is like, as you were saying, Nick, like the bottom of the barrel, just copy paste sites. Like a lot of this stuff is like really offensive to me. Yeah. But, uh, but no, I, but, but number one, I don't listen to those clips a lot of the time because they're stolen. Uh, but also number two, that like they are literally clipped just to make them as clickbaity as possible. So there's never a lot of context or if they're just teasers to get you to like buy the shoot tape, they'll literally, you know, they'll give you the whole story, except every time the person goes to say a name, they'll cut away. Have you ever seen like those previews of interviews yep. and stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So like for that reason, I, I try not to, uh, to mess with that stuff. The fact that Dave Meltzer still has a career is really impressive to me on some level because he actually did more or less weather this storm plus the downtime of the 2002 to 2011, basically, like you said last week, the 2005 to the summer of punk, which is when wrestling came back in a real way. Like we, you and I watched in college and we had friends who watched in college, but now most of the people I know have at least like seen and rest, no wrestlers like they are famous people and there's a transcendence that's happened. I think he kind of caught that wave a little bit, but I also think he just kept doing his job, whether or not you like him. Well, he does his job very well. He writes interesting tidbits. He knows how to pull information. He gets enough hits on what he's doing, meaning Dave Meltzer pronouns, pal, that he can actually like, build an audience of people that respect him. And also he's really good at feuding with Conrad Thompson's uh, guest host, like co-hosts. So there's that. Yeah. That, that's what's kind of interesting is really in the last like year and a half that, that Mel Melter's credibility has always been a thing. Like when you, you know, if you were the kind of person who like watched shoot tape clips on YouTube, as I was just describing, right. Like there was always this whole alternate read on Meltzer. Like on one side, there's like the friend of the fans you know, someone who was really trying to help people, help grow the business in this way by allowing people to kind of watch it on this other level. And someone who, you know, was doing his best to be the paper of record for what was still like a pirate business at the time. He was tired of seeing people lie about the house. So he would literally like go and figure out ways to check the actual house. And that's for the boys in the back that was like, we can trust him. Because it actually affects our payouts. How many people right. Are here. He's calling to see how many tickets they actually sold in advance yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. And that was the difference is the Aftermags never did anything remotely. They literally would just, as we were talking about before we recorded, they would literally just make up quotes. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like most of the time. Like it was the rarity for an interview in one of the After Magazines to be legitimate. But, but so that's the one side of uh, Meltzer. But the other side that's really always been there but has emerged a lot in the last year and a half is this just kind of like, attack on his right to exist that's really weird because he's like 30 years into a successful business and while there definitely were people you know who when he first came out they didn't want it i mean we talked about in previous episodes the idea that you know he was going to raise the bar in a way that a lot of people weren't really comfortable with and he was going to increase fan expectations and as you were saying he was going to increase the boys the wrestlers awareness of the business side of the business and that was something that a lot of promoters had always relied on the boys kind of being jocks or the boys being pirates or the boys being fucked up drug addicts in a way that <laughs> they weren't keeping tabs on this stuff, that they were listening to what was told to them. 
And, you know, you only occasionally had to deal with a guy like Bruiser Brody who was, who was really hep to all that stuff. But with the Wrestling Observer, any wrestler could go into any territory at any promoter or any booker and say, I know your track record. I know that this is what kind of business that you're doing. I know this is, if you're in the pay-per-view business, how many pay-per-views you're selling. But because of all that power he put out there, there's just been this like second backlash 30 years later. It's really, really strange. Like he won over, like I know Jim Ross always talks about Bill Watts, who's like the most stereotypical old school promoter as someone who obsessively from day one, from issue one, read the wrestling observer so there were like it's interesting because he gradually won over all these old style promoters and then it was like he was kind of accepted as the industry leader for like i said close to 30 years and now suddenly uh it, the question has kind of come back up again it's almost like he he needs to uh he, he needs to re-demonstrate his his necessity his his whole raison d'etre he needs to re-establish why he exists allow he, me to reintroduce myself my name is ho exactly like, <laughs> I, no but seriously like if you follow him on twitter it's very no fuck you i've been working on this for 30 years kind of thing and you can kind of understand where he comes from but also you're like why are you teeing up these super marks and these super fanboys of the, and i don't mean this as a knock against conrad but the conrad thompson podcast and like the vince russo podcast which are two separate entities where it's like you are listening to bruce pritchard who's a bullshitter and eric bischoff who is clearly a bullshitter mm-hmm. to the point where even conrad says things and then yeah. trying to argue with the guy who has 30 years of experience that he's lying and he's been lying and he lied 25 years or that he never made a dollar in our business and it's just like geez like that is a that is the narrowest definition or the narrowest standard for for a right to have an opinion or a right to exist because that's my thing is it's not even like his right to publish the newsletter or his right to have an opinion. It's like, it's come down to the point where it's like his, his right to like be Dave Meltzer. Like they literally have a a shirt that says FDM. Like they sell a fuck Dave Meltzer t-shirt through, through the Conrad Thompson t-shirt store. And I mean, everybody, uh, it's everybody's right to sell t-shirts and make money, I guess. But it really is that it's like, the narrative has gone back to being very personal with yeah. him where it's not about his right to publish a wrestling newsletter, have an opinion. It's like his right to exist, to be Dave Meltzer. And I think that's, uh, and we're, we'll just announce next week's topic. Now, uh, fake news is a very similar idea. Like he's basically being treated the way Donald Trump talks about fake news. He is being treated as though like it is, he's a danger to the industry again, that he is like, part of the problem he's the reason smart marks exist and it's like no they always existed he has just been someone who like was a uh, they the roger ebert of wrestling and yes there are movie snobs that talk about like well it got thumbs down or whatever but those people are assholes and they were assholes before robert roger ebert and they will be assholes they were assholes after roger ebert it's just he gave them something to like point to that everyone appreciated as an actual standard in the industry. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I guess that's that's something kind of dangerous to the whole conceit of wrestling, I guess, especially from a promoter's perspective, is once you've established 
something that people are reasonably sure is real knowledge in wrestling, that's pretty dangerous from like every angle, both in your ability to construct reality, like I was saying before, your ability to work the boys in terms of payoffs and dates and getting people to lose and win in certain places. And, you know, it's that, that he put or attempted to put or worked towards putting a kind of truth out there that the industry had always tried to conceal. Like, it wasn't a secret that wrestling was fake. That's like the biggest misunderstanding, right? It's like, that's something that there were exposés written in like the 30s and the 40s when there was like the falling out in the gold dust trio or whatever. You know what I mean? It has always been real to children. And then once you realize that life is a lie, you pretty quickly realize wrestling is also a lie. (laughs) No, but like once you realize like movies aren't magical creations like that are actually happening you pretty quickly realize like oh that television show is real oh wrestling is clearly not real like these even if the fighting is real you understand pretty quickly that like these are characters unless you're a child and that doesn't mean like bad people st- love wrestling and think it's real like i don't think the guy the uh, it's still real to me damn it guy's <laughs> a bad person i think he's a he has the mentality of a child as it relates to wrestling that it, it is a child's i don't watch disney movies thinking that dumbo is real i think it's a really well done movie with incredible animation because i watched it but when i was a kid i had that magical sense of like oh my god this is incredible like you shouldn't you can still love wrestling in the way you can still love animated television shows or movies but you understand that there are constructed realities that are taking place like with actors playing roles and people writing it and stuff like that exactly exactly i mean it, it wasn't that. That's kind of the myth that like people didn't like Dave Meltzer because he was exposing that wrestlers orchestrated. What Dave Meltzer was really exposing, and in my opinion, and I'm I'm not old enough that I was like an adult who lived through this change in the wrestling business, I should say. But kind of my take on this has always been that Dave Meltzer exposed that wrestlers were real guys who drove around in rental cars and who didn't get paid nearly as much as people assumed people on TV were getting paid. And weren't really as big of celebrities as the people who watched wrestling kind of perceived them as being, especially territorial stars and stuff. Like, he exposed the truth that wrestlers were real people, like real folks who who were trying to make Work the best day, living possible. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. That they're, you know, that he he kind of destroyed the image or or helped chip away at the image of the superstar glitz and grammar wrestler and really emphasized that these were like real people. Like if you think of all the reporting and all the stuff that he was doing with like Brian Pillman in the last years of Brian Pillman's life. It's like, what was all that really about? I mean, well, it was really about Brian Pillman getting a shit pile of money, but it was about trying to, to show people what Brian Pillman's frustrations were and to convince people that those were, even though Pillman was nuts, that those were somewhat legitimate labor side concerns. Mm -hmm. Like you're paying me, you know, you're using me the minimum number of dates that you say you're going to use me. You're not giving me these pushes, et cetera, et cetera. Like he took those complaints that when you're keeping things behind the scenes secret and when you're keeping that side of things from the audience, it's way easier to manipulate your audience and to convince the wrestlers that the audience doesn't really care about them, that the Mm -hmm. audience cares about the character and about the story. But through Dave Meltzer, people felt like they got to learn more about wrestlers as human beings. And when that happens, it gets harder for promoters to exploit them or to kind of hide the ball on the on the best talent and all the stuff that we see people rebel against over the last 25 years. It made a noticeable change in the industry, not necessarily in the sense that there's not people who are pushed 
that don't necessarily like Roman Reigns. But Roman Reigns is at least a very talented performer who people don't necessarily like. He's not someone they're pushing like I'm not going to say Hulk Hogan because it's not fair, but Alex Luger, like a WWF era Alex Luger, like that could never happen again because people would just be like, "This guy sucks." We don't care if you tell us he's America. Like, nobody cares. <laughs> and that's part of it is that you understood that these were, like, real performers. He was simultaneously making these real performers that had agency and, and were real people. And also raising the expectations of what people were going to see in the ring. So there's this thing where, like, you have a talented performer who people hate, but they begrudgingly, for the most part, res- like, there are people who just genuinely hate it. Like, even people who think it's funny that they boo still like Roman Reigns as a person because they don't see him as an evil, bad person because of Dave Meltzer, because of the construct he did with, like, a Brian Pillman of, no, these are real people with real complaints and real emotions and real families that, like, have to think about that stuff. It humanized wrestlers in a really positive way for the wrestlers and maybe not so much for the fans. Like, some fans have just never gotten over the fact that, like, these are real people. Reigns is a really interesting case because he's kind of, like, the, the Roman Reigns response, in my head, is kind of a Frankenstein's monster that the dirt sheets do have a decent amount of blood on their hands for. Um, I wasn't a big uh, observer reader. I wasn't a, a subscriber type person uh, during that phase. But I was a Pro Wrestling Torch VIP uh, during that, that span of time. And I will say um, that, like, it wasn't... When they covered Roman Reigns... It was always through the lens of John Cena, right? They had just covered a decade or almost a decade of John Cena not really being the champion that the people who read the dirt sheets wanted. And when they got to Reigns, they seemed like they had that moment of being like, oh my God, not another 10 years of covering this narrative. So they, it seems, or in my opinion, as someone who was reading, you know, The Torch every week and who was consuming like all their audio at the time, uh, because they put out tons and tons of good audio, I I don't, I'm not a VIP anymore just because I was for a number of years and I, I kind of listened to enough of their stuff and read enough of their stuff that I know what they're going to say about things uh, before I read it or listen to it, so to speak. Um, but I recommend it to anybody. So I'm, I'm not impugning the torch or trying to kick any dirt on them. Yeah, and I think in general we both respect the what you think of when you think of dirt sheets. We actually think of as papers of record for the industry and yeah. have real, real value in yeah. the industry, especially – as uh, for me, especially in particular, as a very pro labor person, like I'm really happy that guys are no longer getting screwed over. And when people get injured, you get actual facts and not like this is a worked injury. This is what's actually happening. Like that's important to me to actually yeah. know. Like these guys are okay. They're not actually hurt. I know that sounds cheesy, but like from that perspective, from the so for someone who views it as a industry, like an artistic industry, in the way that you view Hollywood movies, it's important for me that there is a voice for the people. Definitely, definitely. Uh, but like, like I guess it, to get back to the the Reigns example, it's 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 important to have a voice of the people for the people. But it's it's a slippery slope when they begin to lead people when when those dirt cheat guys try to steer the business a little bit. Because like I really think I noticed that with the the Rain stuff and with Wade Keller. Like I said, I think he's great at what he does. I have a tremendous amount of respect for him. But like when, you know, I think he was really looking at it kind of through the lens of the whole scene and experience. And then uh, when Reigns wasn't starting to get over, he was just like, that would be his main talking point. 
And when anytime Reigns would, you know, uh, would look like he wasn't enjoying it or would look kind of confused or lost out there, he would say something about like, oh, he had the boo-boo face or, oh, he looks like he really hates the fans or, oh, he looks like he'd rather be anywhere else. And it's like on one hand, it's very valid criticism to be pointing out if one of the leading actors on a huge television show is acting disengaged, like that's certainly legitimate. But on the other hand, it always felt to me like leading the witness leading the witness like the conclusion was that we were supposed to think roman reigns was a dick and thereby we were supposed to reject him more effectively than we had rejected john cena and thereby save ourselves from another decade of this dialogue like that was always the vibe i got and like i said i think wade is a a great journalist like you know what i mean and a, a great podcaster etc etc but i i always got that vibe that especially with reigns there was this effort to try to steer people towards like, oh, that guy's kind of a dick. And and I think... And also it, make people aware that this was what you were going to be dealing with for the next 10 years. And I think that's what they really did. They spilled the beans of, no, he's the guy. He is the next John Cena. Even if that's not even necessarily the same exact words that Vince used, but there was an understanding, especially in Melter's end. I, I don't... I read the torch, I listen to the torch, so I can just speak from... Meltzer made it very clear that he was the next John Cena. And I think the combination of those two things, and again, what we talked about with the NoDQ websites, that completely shorn of actual context being disseminated constantly by people who are looking to make a quick buck off of wrestling rumors and don't really... just want click. They're literally clickbait articles. Some of them used to be really bad or would be like this former WWE champion is blah, blah, blah. And it's like, oh, it's Bob Backlund. And I think that's what you saw with a lot of this stuff is that it became Roman Reigns is John Cena and Roman Reigns doesn't even care the way that John Cena did. Yeah, exactly. I think that that was kind of the message that was out there. And I think... And, I, it's two, and I think it's important to note that it's two separate people coming together. It's not one person with an, a quote-unquote agenda against Roman Reigns. It's one person making an observation, the other person being like, this is what it's going to mean, without them like planning it. Just, just two parallel storylines that kind of closed in a Roman Reigns. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, it's, you know, it's like wrestling. It's pure wrestling. I mean, these, you know, these uh, dirt sheets... They are about wrestling, but they're also a part of wrestling, which I think Keller and Meltzer have both tried to create a journalistic distance for the sake of professionalism and say they're not part of the business, but they are subject to the same sensationalism, the same knee-jerk, and the, the same increased skepticism that people direct at wrestling in general. The following announcement has been paid for by the New World Order. So, speaking of things that I think are pretty good monthly values, like how I used to pay $10 a month to be a Torch VIP, I really do recommend it. Uh, even if you're not, like, a big reader, uh, the, 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 just the sheer number of audio shows out there is tremendous. you got to check out Todd Martin, and of course you got to check out Bruce Mitchell, who's, like, the whole reason that I write and podcast. But anyway, that's, like, $10 a month. What if there was something out there that was, like, 90 or wait no i'm terrible at math 900 times the value of that where you would still get a lot of great audio content and you would get it in like an extra timely manner like before other people wouldn't that be great nick yes please tell me more <laughs> yeah absolutely if you're a person like nick who wants to learn more about great entertainment for just one or two dollars a month 
you can head over to patreon.com slash H-W-E-T-W. That's an acronym for How Wrestling Explains the World, which is the name of the show you're listening to. So basically, I'm begging for money NPR style. (laughs) I'm not going to hold the show captive for too much longer because I really do hate those NPR telethons, but I do want to stress the unprecedented value and awesomeness of patreon.com slash H-W-E-T-W. If you follow me on Twitter, which I sure hope you do if you're listening to this, uh, you will have seen some of the show notes that I tweeted out the other day from the mystery fiction episode that we just did. That's a great example, a little pilot there, a little preview of what you'll see if you give us $2 a month. Just $2. $2. Whatever Nicolas Cage movie that is. Uh I think it's better off dead. Yeah, is John the one Cusack. With the yeah, John Cusack. Ah, son of a bitch. John Cusack. Who did I say? Nicholas Cage. Nicholas Cage. Oh, I'm thinking Valley Girl. Oh, man. Ah, darn it. I fucked it all up, Nick. I fucked it up. But that doesn't matter because my mistake has nothing to do with the unprecedented value of supporting us on Patreon. And when I say supporting us, I don't mean like, you know, buying us lavish mansions or, you know, rewaxing my strategic uh, battle yacht. I'm talking about paying for hosting fees, making sure that Nick, who currently foots all the expense for this show because I'm unreliable and terrible, it's just about making sure that we're covering expenses here. Uh, If you're not someone who wants to commit to like a monthly debit off uh, any kind of account, I totally get that. You can also make a one-time donation. In fact, if you're just like looking to make one really generous gift, you could come into Patreon at the $25 level. And even if you just did it for one month, you could give us a topic to like write about on Juice Make Sugar or to do a podcast for, and we would freaking do it. So if you're one of those people that Nick hates who feels like they have ownership over the things they like, you should go in. You should just do $25. You can even just do it the one time. I'm not saying you've got to sustain it. $25. That's crazy. No one's got the money to do that. No one who builds a house of bricks has $25 at the end of the month for one podcast. But you might have a one time. And then you can, you know, guide us. You can say, hey, guys, I like when you talk about this stuff. Or I hate when you talk about this kind of stuff. I mean, if you want to give us feedback about stuff that you do want to hear, stuff you don't want to hear, the best way to have our ears is to give us money because our time is valuable. So go to patreon.com slash H-W-E-T-W and fork it over, baby. One dollar or two dollars a month. It's not hard. Get with it, daddy. The preceding announcement has been paid for by the New World Order. You mentioned that Meltzer in particular tried to pull himself out of wrestling like he tried to not be part of the story which didn't really happen I mean one of the most famous tag teams in the world and easily the most famous non-WWE tag team is the Young Bucks and the Young Bucks finisher I believe I don't know enough about the Young Bucks is uh the Meltzer driver right Mm -hmm. absolutely it's like uh it is uh I think it's Matt gets them up like he's gonna give him a tombstone and then uh, Nick uh, kind of does like a springboard to like push them down. And I've, I've seen it like, I don't know, probably 15 times. And it's looked good like seven or eight of those <laughs> times. I mean, no, it's, it's just like they're a, little, they're a little small for it, I guess, which I know they're like trying to break that whole stereotype right now. So I, I, hate, to, uh, I hate to play into it and be uh, sizest <laughs> with, my, with my analysis of wrestling finishes. But no, um, it's, yeah, so they, they call it the Meltzer Driver. And it, it's interesting to me in that it's it's a ironic kind of self-aware nod to the idea that wrestlers throughout the last 30 years have 
partially, specifically put effort into having good matches in order to impress Dave Meltzer. Mm -hmm. So when I think about the Meltzer driver, I think it, it actually kind of works on a couple of levels for me. Like, number one, like I said, yeah, like the whole idea that, like, I always talk about is one of the reasons they really didn't like Meltzer was because he was raising the bar effort level-wise. And I guess the Meltzer driver is, like, the ultimate expression of that, where it's like, you know, here's here's a little guy doing a pile driver, and then his little brother hitting the ropes and flying up in the air and doing a flip and, like, phantom pushing them downwards harder onto their head. So it's, like, very much like a cooperative, fake, very complex wrestling spot that's just designed to look oh, good yeah. and be part of a quote-unquote exciting wrestling match. So there's the whole name Meltzer Driver, Just there's so many levels to it. And I think that's part of what happened in general is that kids who love wrestling now become wrestlers. It's not just former jocks and, and people, as I've described it elsewhere. Um, it's not just the sons of promoters and guys who blow out their knee in college. It's people who were athletic enough to play sports in high school, but were also in theater club and stuff like that. Like a lot of the people you meet did performing things, even like amateur wrestlers and stuff like that, that become professional wrestlers do want to do acting or do theater productions and things like that to, because they like performing. They're performative people. Even if they're the nicest people in the entire world, when you interview them backstage, when you see them out there, they're they're full on doing a, a whole act. And I think that's one of the big things that's changed in front of the camera. But what's changed in the back is those kids grew up reading Wrestling Observer Newsletter and learning all of the rumors and everything that was going on, all the people involved. And part of the reason they were able to like, oh, I know who got it, who had contact because I read the Wrestling Observer. I know this guy has a wrestling school and stuff like that. But it was also they got to have an actual critical analysis of the stuff they were watching, which, again, I'll bring him up because I think they're pretty close in terms of their importance to the way we understand wrestling and movies. Roger Ebert, like people, was Roger Ebert the absolute best reviewer, best writer that was a reviewer of all time? No. But he was a great writer who was very good at reviewing movies. And it touched... America, the American psyche in particular, in a way that like wrestling fans feel about Dave Meltzer. There were some people think he's a total jackass who never made a dollar in the business, and some people think he's like one of the great critics of the last twenty five years in any medium. So mm -hmm. it's like it's somewhere in between. But I think that you have these kids who kids, I mean they're our age, who grew up watching stuff that Dave Meltzer told them to watch and being like, oh, I should use that. Oh, I want to become a wrestler because I saw this match that I had never thought of seeing or thought about this match in a way I had never thought of thinking about. Yeah, and I mean, someone I mentioned earlier because of his kind of unique relationship with Dave Meltzer and the way that Meltzer's news breaking and his on-camera work uh, kind of complement each other was Brian Pillman. And it's like when you look at the indie scene or when you look at that kind of just sub-WWE scene right now, like kind of MLW, Lucha Underground, Impact, like everybody is trying to be Brian Pillman. Everybody is trying to be the wrestler who, who has the, the, the matches that the dirt sheets love, but who also has the kind of crazy gossip magazine uh, persona going on. Like you look at like Joey Janela, you look at like Sammy Callahan, you look at even like Pentagon, like they're all kind of like- There's all an those, edge to them, I feel like. There's an edge to them that specifically speaks to the edge that Dave Meltzer really helped Brian Pillman uh, foster and I think it's it's one of those things where 
what was crazy about Pillman and the reason Pillman works better than these guys do, and it wasn't just because he wasn't a big guy in in the especially that in that era, he was very small performer. He pushed through the Dave Meltzer barrier on top of the kayfabe, like kayfabe, and you have another layer of truth, uh, like a fabricated on some level truth or a constructed truth, although it's it it's, has much more basis in reality of Meltzer, and he broke through that again to become this weird, is it a work or is it a shoot thing? That's just hard to get unless you're an actual crazy genius like Brian Pillman, <laughs> who we will be doing an entire, maybe series of episodes on, but is one of the, you listen to him, people who worked with him and the way he talked about the business and understood the business are all just like, he was brilliant. No, it's like the the story Steve Austin loves to tell me. You were talking about the example of the, you know, the person who was good enough to be a, a good high school or low tier college athlete, but also was like really into theater and stuff. It's like, well, Brian Pillman was someone who made the NFL in spite of his size, in spite of repeated bouts of pediatric cancer. And then was still the guy who in the middle of the night was laying across the back seat of the rental car, reading vocabulary books. So like, I, I it's interesting that we've, we came to this episode to kind of talk about dirt sheets, and through that, of course, you have to talk about Meltzer. And it's interesting to talk about the way that Meltzer has changed wrestling or affected wrestling. And and for whatever reason, Pillman is just such a touch point that I didn't really know we were going to keep banging on about him when we started recording this episode. But every time we're talking about how either Meltzer changed the business or how the business changed because of Meltzer or how the business tried to adjust the way they work in order to work Meltzer. Like it, it really keeps coming back to Brian Pillman. So maybe the, maybe the second half of, uh, of the relevancy of, of, uh, of Dave Meltzer's career really does owe something to Brian Pillman. Yeah. And I think from that relevance of him becoming uh, Frank DeFord called him the best journalist working, but that was also right after he hired him for the national. I don't know if you folks know much about Frank DeFord, but uh, he could really sell a fucking journalist or a news. Well, he couldn't sell a newspaper. He can sell an idea for a newspaper. But what you see is guys like Meltzer begot people like uh, David Bickenspan. I like, I like Bix very much because I think that, Keller and Meltzer to kind of break in and get that acceptance and, and even carve out that niche for, for the kind of thing that they were doing to exist. They had to make certain concessions. And like I said, they were covering up pirate business and there were certain elements of the piracy that they either had to turn a blind eye to or no one would talk to them. Or even if they if they had to downplay to some degree. And I'm really impressed with in the last couple of years, the way Bix has really come out swinging just with like a lot of like uh, like sexual abuse allegations, with a lot of kind of bias related stuff, you know everything. Uh, he did the story on Moolah, which was a really big story. He's done stories on the attendance of WrestleMania, which is something at uh, WrestleMania three, which is something Meltzer has touched at and said for years and years. And Bickenspan actually went and like talked to people who were there and did a lot of the, I don't want to say actual investigative reporting, but investigative reporting that can end up at a place. With a that has now has like a wrestling beat, like a dead spin. Yeah, I feel like he he's turned into really the best investigative reporter in the wrestling business, and that he's asking the questions that certain other people can't ask in order to run the daily business of their dirt sheet. Yeah, like he's, a, it's the difference between like a a Brian Windhorse on ESPN, uh, who's a very good reporter that's a real person's name that's 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 a shoot name yeah yeah, brian windhorse that's a shoot name (laughs) that's like i'm a visual i'm visualizing a very glamorous bojack horseman-esque character (laughs) like someone who lives in that world man Uh, 
Brian Winhorst as um, he is a great reporter within the context of basketball, but he's not a great investigative reporter outside that context where Bick and Spence seems like he could be a great investigative reporter if he was doing tennis or tiddlywinks. <laughs> not that, to say that uh, Dave Meltzer is uh, a bad reporter, but he is a specialist in wrestling rumors and innuendo, not in reporting. He's a good reporter with the deepest finger, the fingers in many sinister soups of wrestling in a way that Bickenspan is a guy who is a reporter whose focus, his beat, is wrestling. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's interesting, too, how, like I said, there's a certain layer that really Meltzer couldn't go and doesn't go as often, and that Wade Keller really strays into more. I think it's more of a Keller thing, but it's really become this sort of new age criticism with, you know, Bix and Satin is the moralizing edge. I think that's something where really, I think, I, I think of Wade Keller, like I associate the, the, the sort of the arguing for decency. <laughs> I really, I really associate strongly with Wade Keller. And it's interesting how now that everybody has access to the dirt, like you were talking about before, the dirt that used to be in the walled garden. Now that the wall has been torn down and everybody has access to the dirt, it seems to me that the new power, the new thought leader, is the person who who sets the trends over the moral stands that fans take in the business. I think that's a way that, once again, in the last year and a half, I think we've really seen that shift where the thought leadership isn't about what makes a good match anymore. The thought leadership is about the moral direction of the wrestling business. Yeah, and, and that started on some level, on some level with Meltzer, with making sure that boys were actually taken care of. But that was done so that he could get access. Not, I don't mean that selfishly. I'm not knocking the work he did. He actually put the, the, did the footwork to, to get that information to establish a rapport with the boys through the newsletter, where you look at a guy like Bickenspan, they don't have to rely on anybody. They can tell a story about the wrestling industry because they have the platform like a dead spin. And I think that's, that's something that's different than, than what I guess you would call a wrestling vertical, which is uh, something like a cage side seats, um, which I wrote for very briefly, actually doing a rumor roundup, and uh, a with spandex, which are verticals within the context of a larger, massive entity in the way that Bleacher Report is similar, is for CNN and Turner, their sports blog, basically. That's kind of how Cage Side Seats, for those who aren't familiar, is the wrestling website, the wrestling team website for SB Nation, which is Sports Blog Nation, Sports Blog, each team in American major sports and most European soccer teams uh, have their own specific team fan run website. And for wrestling, it's a much wider umbrella, but it is for Cage, Cage Side Seats is that that team site. So they run a lot of, they cover WWE mostly because it gets the most clicks, but they also cover other things and they are, they have their foot in the moralizing and in the, the no DQ. They are kind of everything that came before them, but not quite an evolutionary step. They're like a half step. They're the missing link between uh, what you mentioned uh, in passing, Ryan Satin and like a wrestling sheet, which we'll talk in a, a couple of minutes about. But I think what you see with these verticals is they have this weird thing where they have to produce content constantly. So they have to do the no DQ thing, but they have the platform 
that they can do the big and span thing, but for the most part, choose not to. They choose to do almost the, like, Dave Meltzer review kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. They don't really get into... That's not to say they don't report things, but they report wire reports. They report on reporting. They don't do their own investigative reporting. They may do profiles, but they don't do... They don't break stories. Even when their stories are popular, it is usually a function of them getting the first people to do a transcript for uh, a podcast or something like that. It's not actual reporting. And that's not to knock the people that work there. They are there to kind of filter out all of the other stuff where I think if you were to rate them in terms of their, I don't want to say quality, but in terms of their importance to the future of the industry, I definitely think something like a wrestling beat, like the dead spin style or the, even the ringer, um, they are, since they have an established platform where wrestling is part of the thing they do, but not the thing they do as part of a larger platform is, is very helpful for getting actual news out of things. And I think what you see with something like the wrestling sheet is something closer to the wrestling beat that you see on Deadspin, but it's through the lens of the wrestling vertical, but it's a bigger part. They aren't one of uh, 200 or 300 things in a larger, like with Spandex is one of 30 sites on Aparox. On Collider, the wrestling sheet or whatever it ends up being called is more like a page six for the New York post where it's in, it will be one of the reasons people go to that website, but it is not in and of itself the entire website. Yeah. The sheet is interesting to me because I mean, uh, Ryan Satin, uh, he comes from the world of TMZ and this kind of gets back to something we were talking about at the beginning of the episode, but she is really a site that covers wrestling. I think, from a lot of different angles without pushing out an excessive amount of content. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's basically what I'm saying. Is they, they cover wrestling as their job, but it doesn't, their platform does not require them to pump out random shit. Yeah, they can, if exactly. they have a story, we'll report it. They have, and, and I, I should say this now for interest of full disclosure, I am friends with one of the two people involved, James McKenna, but he is not, uh, as far as I understand it, the one making the deals, doing all of this stuff. And I, I think it's fair to say that when you look at them and you look at the the stories they report, they're few and not few and far between, but they're not things that are just copy and pasted. They're I talked to someone, I got report, I have sources, I have this and I have they are written like real investigative reporting without being the in-depth investigative reporting that you see in Bickenspan, where he's basically doing a full on investigative report of almost everything they're more a news website that actually breaks news yeah definitely definitely i'm there i and i don't want to i the term clickbait is so overused because like when i think of clickbait i think specifically of like no dq like we were talking about before where it's something that's very you know very low value and something that only exists basically to get people to look at ads mm -hmm. but i think that what you're describing is kind of the something that I might describe as clickbait that's clickbait in a good way and that it's just actually they stick to the stuff that people actually want to hear about. They have a very good finger on the pulse in terms of what, uh, like what angles and what, which wrestlers people really care about. Uh, they have a finger on the pulse in terms of, like I said, the, uh, the kind of gossip magazine drama and they have a finger on the pulse in terms of the moralizing. They're, they're really good at just being kind of incisive and seeing 
what people actually seem to be caring about in the moment and just kind of focusing on that. Yeah, and, and I think TMZ, which is obviously where Ryan came from, is it is almost like a, I don't want to use this exact term, it's, it's like a, a TMZ for wrestling that is on the side of the Angels in terms of like they're doing, they're not trying to nab people in bad situations or trying to hound people. They're trying to get stories out about a business they love. And they're doing so in a way where they understand exactly what people are looking for. So it feels click, like you said, it's clickbaity in a good way, in the sense that they're not being exploitative with the stuff. They are saying, no, this is the story we know everyone is talking about. Mm-hmm. Here's what we got on it from our actual sources that yeah. we actually talk to, which is a different than a no DQ, who it does the similar thing with no actual reporting on their own. Yeah, that's why, like, Sheet definitely has that one nugget. They always have the one thing that nobody else has, at least for the first two hours, you know, that it's out there circulating. Yeah, they get actual exclusives in a way that you don't see in a lot of modern dirt sheets, unless it's a walled garden situation where they have sources for 30, 35, 40, at this point, like, 40 years. Because Meltzer, I think, started in the late 70s, early 80s in earnest. And he... Like, he's been around forever, and he has connections everywhere. That's why he reports on so many things. But uh, someone like Satin doesn't necessarily have that deep-rooted thing, but they also don't have that deep-rooted thing where they become part of the story themselves. Like, no one's going to make a Satin driver, God bless him. Like, and that I, that's not a knock against the Young Bucks. I think it's it's interesting that he's become a character in the way that a Roger Ebert has. Right in the context of movies and stuff like that, or Tiny Toons. <laughs> well, it's scary, though, because, I mean, even uh, Ryan Satin, didn't he have the beef with Vince Russo, where, like, Vince Russo sent all the people to harass yes. his wife or girlfriend yeah, on social his girlfriend, media? Yeah. Like, that's horrific. Like, that's terrible. And that's something where it's, like, I think that kind of behavior is why Meltzer and Keller maintained the distance from certain aspects of the business that they did for so many years was to prevent stuff exactly like that from happening because it's a pirate business and there's a lot of pirates who are bad people yep and you know i think that like i said there wasn't a blind eye turned but there were the other things were emphasized and there were certain aspects of the business typically the ones about people deep down being really really crummy people that you know that that were kind of pushed aside and then when you have this new generation of kind of millennial journalists and i mean you know i as a millennial myself, uh, we can't help but call a spade a spade when it comes to calling out shitty people. And so I think Which is that, weird for older people to understand. It's like, no, we talk sh- so much shit online growing up that you kind of lose the filter of I have to be polite if you're saying some racist shit or if you're saying some sexist shit or you're harassing somebody. We are very much like, no, stop doing that. Well, why Why have things changed? Because they, they've never been the way you think they are. No, it's like, I always think of Snuka. It's like, to the generation of older wrestling journalists, it was like, oh yeah, Snuka probably would have been WWF champion if he hadn't killed his girlfriend. What a terrible guy. And like, people of our generation heard that story and they were just like, he killed his girlfriend? Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, the- well, you skipped right over the important part, which is he murdered somebody. Yeah, And yeah. I think <laughs> this is a weird thing is i think that's also a function of like the money ball idea of everyone can be replaced we now as a generation understand that like no you can just get a new jimmy snooker just get a new jimmy snooker that didn't murder his girlfriend that seems very easy to us and i think for a lot of older people and that's what you see why you see a russo react that way it's just like, no if you existed now you wouldn't exist you wouldn't be anybody 
because you finagled your way into the business, were a terrible person that nobody wanted to work with, and now you have to reap what you sow, and people don't like having to reap what they sow. Yeah, exactly. So it's interesting that, yeah, I think Meltzer, you know, held wrestling to an account to a certain degree, like in the early 80s, like I always say about, you know, not allowing people to, to get away with either lazy booking or lazy behavior in the ring or, you know, just outright lies. But it seems that the, um, like I said, I keep coming back to the word morality, which makes me sound like someone who doesn't like morality. <laughs> so I'll find a different word. But uh, when it, uh, like, 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 when it comes down to... They were trying to be objective journalists without understanding what that actually meant, which is to have a point of view that is unbiased by personal distaste, but that there are certain, I don't want to say universal truths, but there are certain things that are bad. No, it's like in the, it's like in old time Hollywood in like the 30s and 40s and 50s when they like, especially after like the Fatty Arbuckle trial when that got really sensationalized and like really changed the whole life of someone who'd been one of the biggest stars in the country but like in the 40s and 50s in hollywood there was like a huge reticence to report on any accusations of any wrongdoing against like people who either were powerful executives or powerful performers uh you know in in the studio system and i think what you see is that that kind of changed over the 80s and 90s when people became more aware of that shit happening more or less and now in the last two to three years it's become no we got to get these motherfuckers out like this needs to stop you guys you guys reported on it and didn't push it because you knew if you pushed it you were going to lose your contacts and your access we're learning more and more but access doesn't mean shit because everybody lies yeah exactly um, I think we can end on Everybody Lies. That sounds good. <laughs> uh, did you have anything you wanted to plug in particular this week or just the Twitter box? Um, well, I guess quickly, uh, I want to start by uh, thanking everybody who listened to and enjoyed the mystery show last week. Um, it seems like there were some folks out there in the uh, mystery publication business who uh, who also got a hold of it. So that made me very happy that we uh, built this together. So hopefully I will have uh, good news for you all in terms of the future of uh, – my next mystery story. But just generally, please remember, as always, to follow me on Twitter, at Dave Writes Junk. I should also say this week, or I should remind the both of us, since we have not in the past, that there is now a Twitter account for this show. It's not super duper active. There are a few placeholder posts, but we're going to start migrating a lot of our official communications over there. And as especially as we continue to roll out stuff for, you know, patreon.com slash HWETW, uh, we'll communicate more and more through there. So if you're someone who's listening to this show right now, whether it's your first time, you know, whether you're that 10 year old little girl who builds a house of bricks and is listening to us the first time, or whether you're someone who's been along for the ride since the very beginning, please make sure you follow at H-W-E-T-W-Pod on Twitter. That's H-W-E-T-W-Pod, as in How Wrestling Explains the World. Pod. And uh, I had tried H-W-E-T-W just straight. Uh, apparently some random person who hasn't tweeted in six years took it. So that's why it's pod and not just H-W-E-T-W. I was so upset. I was like, great, I have an idea. It's five letters. It'll be work. Nope. Do they have uh, do they have eminent domain for uh, for for handle yeah, squatting? We, yeah, once we get over like a thousand followers, I think I can steal it from him. Uh, I think that's how it works. It's squatter strikes. Uh, yeah. He's squatting on it, but like if I buy the house, he has to. If leave. you can produce the deed, <laughs> yeah. And you can check me out at the Nixter. That's T H E N one C K S T E R. And as Dave said, H W E T W 
pod. I will be probably t- live tweeting uh, next week's Raw and SmackDown on there, though you'll probably see with the hashtags if you don't follow us. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, if I hate it, I might not do it again, and I will tell you next week that I'm not ever doing it again. <laughs> and we'll find something else good to do with the Twitter account. <laughs> but uh, in general, yeah, just check me out. Uh, I may have, like Dave, an announcement coming up soon. Um, I, I don't want to say much more, but uh, it, it could be very exciting. Uh, at least for me, maybe less so for you guys. Uh, and you can check us out at howwrestlingexplains.podbean.com. You can also rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Like I said last week, we are now on basically all of the major platforms I could think of. If anybody has another platform podcatcher, I might apply uh, to be added to. But if you have a favorite pod app, please let me know, and I'll happily add us to that. And as we said, uh, next week's topic will be on the concept of fake news. Won't be too political. We will be talking about political things in a larger context. I think the larger question uh, is the one we'll be answering is what does fake news mean? An explanation of the ways in which fake news affect our understanding of the world around us and the people who are telling you what's fake news, how that affects your understanding of the concept of truth. Those last two sentences you just said were, were so Orwellian that I'm already getting uh, pumped up slash horrified for our next recording session. You're double plus horrified? <laughs> exactly, yeah. I'm double plus pissing my pants. Bruno Sammartino, you did appear on the Larry King uh, live program uh, last week. Are you impressed with Mr. McMahon's apparent uh, acknowledgement here on this program, which was not forthcoming on that one, that maybe there is a problem? Some of these poor folks out there are sitting there listening to these guys, and when he makes them, they even applaud. Poor people, you don't know this man. Let me explain something to you. I retired. I wrestled from 1959 to 81, and I retired. When I came back in 84, Chicago commentator, believe you me, the world of wrestling that I left and the one that I found, it was bizarre. I mean, it was filled with drugs of all kinds. We're talking about steroids, but there was cocaine. In fact, this man who pretends like he wasn't aware, why didn't somebody come to me? One time I had to go to Arizona, to New Mexico, different place because one of his druggies was, was, was out of it. And I took his place. You know, I really didn't care to at that stage of my life because I had retired. I specifically said to the man, hey, if I'm going to be going to this place in the arena, says I want to make sure that I don't drive with any of you wrestlers that are full of coke and whatever. So he arranged for this other old-time wrestler, Jay Strongbow, for me to travel with him because I wouldn't be in the car because I was always afraid of a car being stopped full of drugs. And he said to me, don't worry. He says, I'll get the uh, agent to rent the car so you can go around with him. Well, let me just say this in behalf of uh, Mr. McMahon. First of all, uh, all these charges are yet to be proven. <laughs> they're just coming up. Uh, and if just, I want to get to this, uh, Bruno. Why? Well, yeah, that's another thing. Why are they just now coming up? Let's understand this. You I can answer that question. What is it? Um, there's never been a forum for them before. Uh, you, you have to understand that the um, wrestling business has always been a totally closed entity. It's like almost like an elementary school. You don't snitch. You don't tell. If something happens in the business, yeah. there was a friend of mine, okay, and it has nothing to do with Vince McMahon. I don't want anyone to think it does. Who was murdered in a dressing room. And it was very difficult. This was in Puerto Rico. And it was very difficult for the wrestlers, even in the murder, to go to the police the next day and tell the truth. It took one of the guys who was a friend of the guy says, we've got to go tell the truth. And there was so much pressure right. on telling, the, you know, that you don't snitch. I get it. Yeah.
here among the poor Sad, despicable, oppressive, misinformed But we have for you to fight your tongue secure And the promise that you're right in every one